What would your reaction be if I said that you've been lied to for most of your life? I mean, how would you take it if I said that for a majority of your existence, you've been living in somewhat of a dream world? You see, for most of us, we've been brought up believing that our performance makes us who we are, right? And we learn this as young kids from chore charts to standardized tests and report cards, piano recitals and athletic banquets. The message was loud and clear for us at a young age that if you do a good job, then you're going to be rewarded. But if you don't do a good job, then you just might end up being punished. And then we grow up and this only continues. If you do a good job at, in the workplace, then you're going to get a good performance review. But if you don't, then you might end up getting a demotion or be out of a job altogether. Now, our performance has payoffs in marriage too, right? I mean, guys, suppose you came home one evening this week with a bouquet of flowers in your hand and a note addressed to your wife that said, baby, I've been thinking about you all day long. You are the woman of my dreams. Let's go out for a hot date later tonight. And then you went on to take her to her favorite restaurant. Now, guys, if you were to give to your wife in that way, what can you anticipate happening later that night? You might just get to watch a TV show together, right? And so this idea of producing totally permeates the way that we think life works. Therefore, a lot of us believe that I am who I am because of what I do, or maybe because of what I have failed to do. But what if all that is a lie? I mean, what if when we rest our identity and worth based upon what we produce or how we perform, it's really just an illusion, and most importantly, what if we can be free from all that? You see, two weeks ago, we started this journey through a book in Scripture called Galatians. And in this series, we've been learning that to be connected back to our Creator, there is nothing we can do to earn it. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. Rather, it's about receiving this free gift called grace by trusting in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And this is what we simply call the gospel of grace. Now, upon, receive, upon receiving it, though, we tend to easily morph into image maintenance, and we want to come across more put together than we really are, right? And so we have this tendency to sweep our sin, our struggles, and our burdens underneath the rug because we don't want people around us to see what's really going on, what's beneath that surface. And that's what we have a tendency to do. But last week we learned that freedom prevails over that type of enslavement by having moments of honesty. And in this service last week and at the end, a lot of us took a step towards freedom by having personal moments of honesty with God by filling out those red and white cards on either side of the worship center and at the front of the chapel that you see. A lot of us took a step towards freedom in that way. Now I don't know what it is that you struggle with. I don't know what sin is tough for you to maybe move beyond in your life, but what I do know is that whatever you're battling, whatever sin, whatever mistake or feeling of inadequacy or insecurity that you have all goes back to one misconception that we have in life, and that is not understanding our true identity. And you see, you don't need me to tell you this. 
And maybe for you, when someone criticizes you, you immediately look for ways to get back at that person because what they said didn't just discourage you, but their words devastated you because for so long you believe that you are who people say that you are. Or maybe you just feel incomplete as a person because for so long you've been told that unless you have a spouse by your side that you aren't whole, that you aren't complete. And and so you just feel as if you're missing it in life because you aren't even dating anybody. Or it could be that it's tough for you to put work away in the evenings when you come home. I mean, you just don't like to have that idle time because you aren't producing something, you aren't working on something, and you feel as if you aren't adding value, you aren't bringing value to the table. Now, as David Lamas says, our identity is the truest thing about you. Now, understand that we are not human doings, we're human beings, right? And so if out of our thoughts and behaviors, if our identity really flows to our thoughts and behaviors, the most important question that we can ask ourselves is, who does our creator say that we are? Well, the author of this book called Galatians, a guy named Paul, actually spends a great deal of time talking about our identity in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. Today we're going to be in chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. Now, as you're turning there, if... uh, you're a guest with us today and you aren't a follower of Jesus, then I want you to know how glad we are that you're here. I want you to know up front, it's only fair that you realize that what we're going to be talking about today is exclusive yet inclusive at the same time. The identity that we're going to pick apart is only reserved for those of us who have received this free gift called grace by trusting in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, all right? But that doesn't mean that you don't have value. You see, every person is made in the image of God, making every life sacred, but understand that not everybody is a child of God. And so understand that God has chosen you, but have you chosen him? And so that's maybe something that you need to wrestle with. And so in chapter four, uh, verse one, Paul picks apart the identity that is reserved for those who are in Christ. Look at what he says in verse one, chapter four. He says, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, He is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Now, Paul's referring to Jews here. He's saying that since Christ came and accomplished what was totally impossible for us to do in the first place, which was complete obedience to the law, every Jew still trying to be saved through submission to the law is nothing but a slave. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Check out verse 2. He says, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. And so also, he says, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, this is one of seven illustrations in this letter that Paul used to tell us that grace is much better than obedience to the law. Now, this specific analogy refers to the better identity that the gospel offers and provides us. Now, to understand the magnitude of what Paul said here, we need to understand the law's purpose, okay? And so let's reverse back to chapter 3, verse 24, see what Paul says about it. He says, so the law was our guardian, that's a really important word, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith, Now, the word guardian is crucial. A more accurate translation is the word tutor. Now, it comes from the Greek word pedagogos. I know, I sound so smart right now, all right? Don't be deceived. 
I just have a smart friend, Cy Huffer. Now, this word refers to a specific slave who was a tutor until the time came to take that child to a real teacher who would then instruct him on greater forms of education. You see, the tutor was always temporary for the child, and his purpose was to prepare the child for the real teacher. And so if God's law is our tutor, then that means it's only temporary for us, and it only teaches us something for a short while. It teaches us what, though? That we need a Savior who can rescue us. Now, perhaps the most freeing thing that you can understand today is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how great your intentions may be, you can never measure up to what God requires. That's what the law shows us. That's what the law tells us. Now, suppose you were driving down a dark road at night and your car broke down. Your first reaction might be to get out of the car, pop open the hood, and see what went wrong. Now, because it's dark out for you to see what the issue was, you would need to turn that flashlight app on your phone and... And maybe once you did that, you saw that a spark plug came loose or something. Now, what your flashlight can't do is fix that spark plug, right? It only shows you what went wrong. It only shows you the problem. And so if Paul says, look, the law, the law is like a flashlight, it shows us what is going on deep within the darkness of our hearts. It exposes our need for a Savior. The law can't save us. The law can't fix us. Rather, it only shows us how messed up we all are. But notice in chapter 4, verse 3, how Paul says that we are um, in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now here, Paul contrasted the prior condition of the Jewish believers to what they used to be so that they would understand more completely their unshaken identity in Christ. Understand that they were uh, battling this in their minds. And so what Paul's saying here is that Jesus gives us this better identity. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, the first thing that we realize is this, that a better identity means that we are not who we used to be. A better identity means that we are not who we used to be. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife Savannah and I were watching Fixer Upper on Netflix by show fans. How many of you watched that show? All right, most of us in here uh, try to avoid it, though, at all costs, because what that show will do is inspire you to do things around your home that you think you can do yourself, (laughs) but you really can't. All right, and for someone who struggles hanging curtain rods and picture frames on the wall, this just doesn't work well for our marriage, all right? Now, if you haven't watched Fixer Upper before, it's this reality show about a couple named Chip and Joanna Gaines that fix up old homes for new buyers on a budget. And the buyers, what they do is they give the Gaines a budget and then they reconstruct the home of their dreams. This renovation usually takes a few months or so, all right? Now, for those few months, the homeowners are not allowed to drive by that house and see the progress that is being made on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Why? Because they want them to be really surprised at the big reveal towards the end of the show. And so when that couple gets to see their new home for the first time, they stand out in front of the street, and in between their newly renovated home and them is this giant life-size, almost life-size, massive wall with a photo canvas to it of what their house used to look like. And so the other night, my wife and I are watching this show, and Chip Gaines says this right before the big reveal. The wall is standing between the couple and their new home. He says this. He said, you know, we put this wall here so couples are reminded of what their home used to look like so that they can appreciate how far their house has come. 
And so when Paul says here that, hey, before you received the gospel, you were really enslaved, this is a call for us to be grateful for what Christ has done for us on our behalf. Now, before Jesus, we weren't any less valuable. We just were enslaved and we were yet to be redeemed. Now, you might wonder, okay, Patrick, that's great, but what are those elemental spiritual forces of the world that Paul talks about? I mean, what were we really enslaved to? It's a good question. And this simply means that apart from Christ, we instinctively try to save ourselves. We try to figure it out on our own. One translation says this, that we were enslaved to the useless rules of the world. Now, you do not have to be a Christian. You do not have to have read the Bible before to know that something isn't right within us. Now, some of you right now are disagreeing with me in your mind, and you're thinking, no, Patrick, I don't need to be fixed. I'm a good person. (laughs) And you see, to say that, you are assuming that you are complete and whole. You're saying that you've never felt empty before. You've never been discouraged. You've never felt down. You've never been depressed You've never felt this pressure to measure up to someone else. You've never tried to compete with someone so that you would look better than them. And if that is what you are thinking right now in this moment, I want you to know that we've all been there before, but let me just press into that by asking you this question. What if those thoughts, those voids, and those emotions that you experience is really the voice of God saying, you can't fix yourself. Only I can do what you are trying to do desperately for yourself. Only I can fix you. Now, one thing that uh, we've talked a lot about in this series is, is our need for Christ is never-ending, <clears throat> even after we've begun a relationship with him. But there's this tendency, I don't know if you've ever felt this before, that the longer you walk the Christian life to try to prove yourself by acting maybe more put together than you really are. And let's be, let's be straight, I mean, it is tough to internalize grace because we want to feel as if we've accomplished it, Right? Back in the 1970s, psychologists coined a term, imposter syndrome. Now, this mental condition describes people who are unable to internalize their accomplishments. And so, despite obvious signs of success, people that suffer from this syndrome are quick to dismiss their success as, you know, maybe luck, time, or or they convince themselves that they are frauds who don't deserve what they have achieved. And so these patients end up feeling a sense of pressure to produce at even greater levels in order to validate themselves. And I wonder how many of us in here today, we suffer from this spiritually, not because of something that we've done, but because of something that's been achieved for us. I mean, I don't know how this plays out for you in your life, but we tend to avoid grace because it seems too good to be true. And and so practically, here's how this plays out for us. We think that God will finally like us, will finally be in love with us if we attend more Bible studies, studies, if we pray using the right language, if, if we attend church enough, if we serve more. You see, there are a lot of us in here who are saved, but you're enslaved. Now, is obedience important? Absolutely. But you see, why we obey is even more important. Let me just clarify it by saying it like this, that obedience does not dictate grace. Grace motivates obedience. So we don't obey for grace. We obey because of grace. We serve, we pray, we tell others about Jesus, we care about our culture, we invade unreached people groups not to gain acceptance or to put God in debt to us. No, we do those things because it's what Christ has done for us. 
Let's pick back up here in our text. Look at uh, Galatians 4, verse 4. He says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now here's the next thing that we learn. It's this, that a better identity, a better identity means that we've been adopted. A better identity means that we've been adopted. Now there are some significant phrases in these two verses that I don't want you to miss. Paul says that when the time had fully come, Now, he's simply saying that God controls all of human history, and one day we're going to realize that it all revolved around the life of Jesus. It centers around Christ. And then Paul says that Christ was born of a woman born under the law. And so he's saying that, look, Jesus was not only fully God, but Jesus was fully man as well, who is obligated to keep the entire law, which is a miracle in itself, because you know what? He actually did. But then verse 5, we read that Christ came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, the image that we get from that word redeem is that of a slave being released from his or her owner by paying the slave's full price. In ancient Rome, a childless, wealthy man could take one of his servants to adopt him. And at that moment of adoption, he ceased to be a slave and received all the financial and legal privileges within the estate as the son and the heir. And you see, that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. No matter our past, no matter how dark it may be, the blood of Jesus has covered the adoption fee into the family of God. Matt Chandler is a pastor down by the church where I served in Dallas, Texas, and he tells of a time when he was a freshman in college, he got to know a young single mom uh, that was uh, in one of his classes, and she had come back to school and uh, was wanting to finish her degree. Her, Her name was Kim. Kim lived a very dark and broken life. When Matt met Kim for the very first time, she was actually involved in an extramarital affair with a married man. And so Matt and his buddies would occasionally go over to her house, babysit for her, and just be kind to her in hopes of sharing the gospel with her. Well, Kim loved music. And so one week, Matt invited Kim to attend a Christian concert with him, and and a little bit reluctant, she, she did end up going. The music was great that night. The band played for about two hours or so. And then at the very end, a minister got up on stage, and in a very angry tone, right out of the gate, he said, tonight I want to talk to you about sex. Matt thought to himself, "Uh uh-oh, this this could be a problem. (laughs) Knowing Kim's current life circumstance, he knew things weren't going to go well. At that point, the minister on stage then pulled out a rose, and he said, do you see this beautiful rose right here? And he smelled it, and the rose was intact. It was deep red, and he then threw it out into the audience. He said, I want everybody here to touch this rose tonight. There were about 1,000 people at the concert. As the rose made its way around to everyone, he then, the minister, proceeded to talk on the dangers of sex before marriage and STDs and statistics. And and Matt is sitting next to Kim and she just has her head in her lap in shame, wondering. And Matt is just thinking, man, what what are you doing? After about 20 minutes or so, the, the minister said, okay, now where is my rose? Someone jumped up on stage and gave the minister the rose, and the rose was kind of broken in half. The petals had all fallen off. It didn't even smell like a rose. It didn't even look like a rose. And he did it to really build up to his big point. This was the minister's main crescendo. He held it above his head, and he said, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? Nobody would buy this. Nobody would buy this rose. And Matt said it took every ounce of him to not stand up in that moment and say, Jesus wants the rose. 
Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I don't know what past you have represented in here today. But regardless of how dark and broken it is, maybe you feel like that rose. Know that the invitation to be adopted into God's family extends to you today. See, apart from Christ, we can't fix ourselves. Apart from Christ, we are enslaved to shame, guilt, and fear. Apart from Christ, we're constantly searching for a better identity and lesser things. I mean, orphaned people live orphaned lives, right? And so God, in his infinite grace and mercy, stepped foot in this broken world, and he offers us adoption in a way to be connected back to himself. Author Tim Keller says it like this, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God, but what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. And in our endless search for significance, we wander around attempting to find worth and value in things and people. But you see, in God's grace, and Jesus says to us in this moment, I'm, whether you know it or not, I'm, I'm what you're looking for. Only I can save you. Only I can fix you. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, time out here for, for just a minute. <clears throat> If you're a Christian today, chances are you made that decision because some individual in your life invested into you. Maybe this was a parent, maybe this was a friend or a neighbor. And so I want to ask you to do something here that I've never um, done before. If you first came to know Christ or you first started attending Crossroads because someone invited you Maybe it was to an event here at church, a weekend service, or a small group gathering. Would you just stand up for just a minute? It's probably about 60% of us in here, right? You can be seated. Now, that's what you call the power of an invitation, okay? Now, in three weeks here at Crossroads, we have an opportunity to invite people in our life to come to know about the adoption that awaits them in Christ Jesus through an event that we do every single year called Christmas at Crossroads. Now, one question I want to ask you is, what if this is when that person learns that though they are orphaned from their heavenly father, that Jesus offers them to be adopted into his family? Now, do not guilt people in your life into this. Okay, assure them that this is not a timeshare presentation, all right? You're not inviting them to be a part of an Amway sales pitch, all right? But let me ask you this. What if the best gift that you could give Jesus for his birthday is people or more souls. Now, you and I, we don't have control over whether or not a friend meets with God, but what we do have control over is setting up that first date. And so I just want to challenge you and encourage you to pray, invite, and attend with someone who is close to you but is far from God, and let's continue turning our community upside down for the glory of God. Let's continue on here in verse four. I'm sorry, uh, chapter four, verse six. Paul says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, God did not adopt us to be all by ourselves. No, the moment of our salvation, he graciously took up residence inside us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the last thing that we see from this text is this, that a better identity means that we are not abandoned. 
A better identity means that we are not abandoned. If you're a true believer, you do not lack the spirit of God living inside you. According to our text, the spirit helps us pray and prompts us to have intimacy with the Father. Now that word Abba literally means daddy. You see, it's a, ter- it's a term of endearment and closeness. I mean, imagine for just a minute if my children after service ran up to some random guy in the atrium and said, daddy, daddy, daddy. I mean, that would just be weird, right? In fact, that would make us great candidates for the Mari Povich show, you know? Whose baby is it? <laughs> now, out of all the kids on the planet, there are only two that have the right to call me daddy. And when they call me daddy, I will drop whatever I'm doing and respond. And so that's the image of closeness that we have with our father. And sometimes we won't get there until we're broken. Remember, broken is about being broken about what's broken inside you. Jacob and uh, Jerrica Limbach first attended Crossroads back in January of this year. And, but it was back in 2010 when God really got a hold of them. At that point, they only had one daughter, and to be straight, their marriage was really struggling. And Jacob's job wasn't going all that well at the time. Jerrica was ready to leave Jacob because she had found out that he had been unfaithful to her. And as Jacob gave me permission to tell this story, and he was telling it to me the other day, he said, I remembered sitting in my car before work, thinking to myself, how did I get here? There was nobody he could turn to. He felt abandoned all alone. He felt empty. You ever been there before? You ever seen your brokenness from a different perspective and thought to yourself, how did I get there? I never planned on that happening. Maybe you didn't plan on being divorced at this age. Maybe you didn't plan on getting hooked on meth. You didn't plan on getting pregnant out of wedlock. It doesn't matter why you are where you are. What matters is it's where you are. And at this point in your life, you just feel as if you're all alone. You feel abandoned. Well, when Jacob had his moment, he he felt as if he had been left in the dust. Jerrica had recently gone through a tough pregnancy with her first daughter, and while in the hospital, Jerrica had committed her life to Jesus. Jacob wasn't interested at the time. He was working really hard to somehow supplement the loss of Jerrica's income so he could provide for them and not lose their home. Jacob was trying everything to do to make work on his own work out for their family, even if it meant time away from them in the evenings. And so due to long work hours, stress, and miscommunication, Jacob and Jerrica just, they grew apart. And so Jacob checked out. Well, nothing seemed to be going right for him. His job wasn't developing the way he anticipated. Jerrica had caught him in some lies and had completely broken her trust. Jacob just felt helpless, hopeless, and lost And then one evening, when it seemed as if life just couldn't get any worse for him, Jacob had what he called a serious moment of honesty. He asked himself, is this the husband that you want to be? Is this the dad that you planned on becoming? You see, looking back, that was the moment when God really began exposing his brokenness so that he would begin tasting and experiencing his freedom. He wanted to be someone completely different. He didn't like who he had become. And again, isn't that some of our stories in here today? You see, beneath those questions that Jacob was asking himself, he was really running after a better identity. He didn't want to be a slave any longer. He was trying to run from being an orphan. He may not have known it at the time, but in that moment, he was desiring to be adopted by his heavenly father. And again, I guess he was at a point where a lot of us are at right now. He just didn't know how to move forward. And so maybe it was the influence of Jericho upon his life. 
Maybe it was the words of a youth pastor from long ago that kept going through his mind. Perhaps it was a friend that had been telling him about Jesus. But in his moment of desperation, Jacob turned to Jesus and he asked for his help. As he said, only God could fix what I had messed up, what I had ruined. It was on a Saturday night, and so Jacob went to a local church, walked forward at the end of service, and soon after that was baptized, which represented the new identity that Jacob was adopting and wearing. Now you see, telling you the story of Jacob turning to Christ would only be half of it. It'd be incomplete. You see, early on in their walk with Christ, Limbox learned something that we all have a tendency to avoid, and that's this, that you can't learn to live out your better identity in isolation. No, if you've truly been adopted, <clears throat> then that means that you're a part of a family. After Jacob was baptized, they joined their church and at that time got really involved in a small group. Last year, Jacob's job actually transferred them here to Evansville and since then have joined our small group and they continue to grow. They would tell you that to this day, that because of their adoption into the family of God was so incredibly real to them that throughout the past four years, they've actually adopted four children of their own. Now, here's what I know. Jacob was once a father that was too selfish to spend a few moments with his wife and kids on a given weeknight. He was once enslaved to control and pride. But you see, now Jacob has been washed Jacob has been cleaned. He is a new creation who now has a better identity. You see, Christ is not just into life modification. Jesus is into life transformation. You see, Jesus, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. You see, a lot of us, we walk in here today and we need to be reminded of that. Because what ends up happening in life is our shame throws labels upon us that honestly are just nothing but lies. But what ends up happening is that we end up believing it for, you know, if they're upon us for long enough. And maybe your label is, your label is single mom. Your label is single dad. Your label right now is divorcee. Your label is insecurity. Your label is midlife crisis. You know, there's another letter in Scripture that the Apostle Paul actually wrote to a church in the first century that was pretty messed up. And so Paul wrote to this church not just to correct their behavior and to tell them the right way to live, but to remind them of their secure identity in Christ. And so out of the gate, Paul didn't just say, do this, don't do that, avoid those circumstances. No, he starts out by reminding them of their identity in Christ. And so check out what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so as Paul is writing this letter to a pretty messed up church, he's imagining the people that make up this congregation, and he's just kind of going pew by pew by pew because he knows their stories. He knows who they used to be. But then check out what he continues to say. You see, his point is that at the end of this letter, at the end of this part of the letter, everyone would be raising their hands, standing up and saying, yep, that, that was me. That's who I used to be. And he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so as we end today, I just want to ask you one simple question. 
What would change in your life if you believe that you are not what's been done to you, but you are what Jesus has done for you? Or what would change in your life if you believe that you are not maybe what's been done to you or what you've done, but you are what Jesus has done in your place? Now, what we're going to do right now is we're going to enter into a time of communion, and I really wanted us to save this for last because at communion, this is our moment where we remember that our identity is rock solid in what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's the time in our service where we literally taste and feel what it all goes back to, and that is that Jesus came to this dark and broken world, and he went through the crucifixion, took our place, and really did what we deserved. And so when we eat that little piece of bread, what that represents is Jesus' body that was broken and beaten and tortured and abused as he went through that crucifixion, that cup of juice that we're about to take, it represents his blood that was poured. And I just want you to think, maybe in these next few moments, a moment of silence, what, what would change in your life if you really believe that you aren't what's been done to you, but you are what Jesus has done for you. And if you're in Christ with us today, then then we invite you to take that bread and that juice as the trays are passed here in just a moment. But just imagine how, how could things change for you for the best. Let's pray, we'll take communion and then we're gonna sing one last worship song. Father, I love you so much. And God, just reading through 1 Corinthians 6, just now I see the identity that used to define many of those who made up the Corinthian congregation. And, and God, I put myself on that list. That's who I used to be. We got in your infinite grace and mercy and kindness. You've come to this world and you've changed us. You've given us a better identity and you enable us to become a new creation. And so, Lord, as we take communion, I know that a lot of us, we just have a tough time understanding that. I just have a tough time applying this to our life. And because, God, honestly, there's so, so many labels that we throw upon ourselves that our shame puts upon us that, that we just believe are true but are not true. And so, God, just remind us all over again every single day that while Satan knows our name, he calls us by our sin. You know our sin, yet you call us by, your, by our name. And we thank you for that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.